Scripture this morning is Mark 7, 24-30. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Amen. Thank you, Gene. Before we get into our, our text formally this morning, um, if you have your Bible reading guide as well, you might have noticed if you've been following along with that, that next week we are not going to be in Mark. We have been uh, doing the Gospel of Mark for several weeks now, but next week we're going to look at the book of Esther. Can anybody guess why? Purim is coming up uh, next week. The, I think it's Monday and Tuesday, actually. Um, but I figured as I was, well, first of all, as I was trying to set out our study uh, and schedule it out, uh, I was thinking, as it gets close to uh, Easter time, we should at least try to line up, if we can't make it all the way to, uh, to the story for Easter and Mark, at least try to get the triumphal entry uh, on the right date. And so I needed to space things out a little bit, and I, I noticed that Purim was coming up, and I thought that would be a really interesting uh, break for us to take in the midst of our series. So next week we will be looking at Esther, which is interesting as well because it's another text about Jews and Gentile territory, which is what we're going to be looking at this morning, as Jean read our text for us this morning, uh, I'll also say uh, last week I really enjoyed uh, Bob's message for us and how he led us through this uh, narrative text of Jesus walking on the water and how it elicits so many questions for us, so many questions for us to wrestle with. Uh, this week, in this text, there's one pretty glaring question that, that kind of comes up, and I'm going to spend most of my time on that question this morning, and you may not even be convinced my, by my interpretation or my answer, but what I want to do for us this morning is wrestle with that question, why does Jesus call this woman a dog? And what are our options for interpreting this text? And I'll give you what I think is a, a the most persuasive option for myself, and, and we'll talk about that a little bit, but I would also encourage us in our life groups and other discussions, let's wrestle with this together. You can feel free afterwards to have a conversation with me and say, actually, I think that this other option is better, maybe even one that I haven't uh, come up with, but we're going to wrestle with this together this morning with God's Word. So why in the world, where did I put my hand here? Why in the world does Jesus call this woman a dog. Well, option one that we have for our text this morning. It's not yet time for the Gentiles here. Some people in uh, wrestling with this passage would argue that Jesus' reluctance here to help serve this woman is pragmatic. 
that he has already been drawing large crowds among his own people, and he's struggling to find solitude right now. In Mark 7 alone, uh, Jesus has continued to have crowds drawn to him, and he's continuing after the event of walking on the water, of feeding the, the thousands, crowds continue to find him. And so now he is going to this new area, trying to find a place to get some more solitude, and he still can't find solitude. Uh, this woman shows up in the midst of his house where he's trying not to be found. And uh, the argument goes here, if he heals this woman's daughter, and the word gets out among the Gentiles as well, it's only going to get more difficult any place for him to rest in his travels. This uh, interpretation also uh, focuses on the fact that Jesus' earthly ministry is primarily focused on the Jewish people. His disciples will later be able to spread the message through Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth, but for now, this is his time is focused. Now, Matthew and Luke, they both mention Jesus healing a centurion's servant. You might bring that up uh, in opposition. But Luke does mention that the centurion is first vouched for by the Jewish leaders in the area. That he's a supporter of their synagogue. Um, and both accounts note that Jesus doesn't even go into his home. Matthew, Mark, and Luke also report the restoration of the gathering demoniac who lives in Gentile territory. So some people assume that he's a, demoni- that he's a Gentile himself, uh, this demon-possessed man. But it actually remains ambiguous whether this demoniac was a Gentile himself or if he was just pushed out of uh, his normal area because of his condition. Uh, or perhaps his, he and his family and his connections just lived in the diaspora, that they were just scattered into a different place. So this argument again emphasizes that he, Jesus limited his earthly ministry to the lost sheep of Israel. Matthew's version of this account specifically even says that only occasionally making exceptions in cases, cases where uh, the Gentiles either vouched for by other Jews or demonstrate some great level of faith, as in the case of this woman. I'll suggest that there's two main reasons uh, that this is difficult to go with, though. First, the accounts of Jesus' ministry in Gentile territory, they could just as easily be read with uh, an acknowledgement that Gentiles were likely in those crowds. Uh, and this demoniac very well could have been a Gentile. Uh, it's kind of ambiguous either way, and so making a choice one way or the other is kind of arbitrary, depending on your, which way you uh, decide to, you think is more persuasive. Uh, second, even if he did truly mean to limit his ministry uh, in that exclusive way, this explanation does not address Jesus' harsh language to this woman. I mean, surely he could have communicated his priority, priority to her, uh, the Jews without calling her a dog in the process, right? So for that reason, I'm unconvinced. Move on to option two. Option two, Jesus is just testing this woman's faith. This is a popular interpretation of the passage. Builds off that first one. She's not Jewish, so he's technically not supposed to do anything for her yet, at least. But this interpretation would argue he wants to heal her, He's just using the strong language to push her to demonstrate her faith. And she says the right thing, and her daughter is healed. One big glaring issue with that. There are no other examples in the Gospels where Jesus denies healing to anyone who comes to him, Jew or Gentile. There are times when he's been inactive because faith was lacking, but whenever someone comes to him in need, he does not deny deny them. In fact, the very act of showing up that she she does displays faith, especially when she shows up in such humility 
begging at his feet. She, she is humbling herself before him. He has never before denied healing to test faith for before. So why now? So option number two. Not going to go for that one. Option number three. This is really a term of endearment, if you think about it. Bible scholars and commentators have gone rounds on this passage trying to clean up the language here. My favorite attempt for this, note that the word for dog here, there's two options, uh, and, and Jesus uses the one that's the diminutive form. It's really more like a little household pet. It's really like he's calling your acute little puppy. You know, not, not a mangy scoundrel. I'm not sure about you, but that almost seems worse to me. Like, that, that doesn't seem better in this case. But also, the context here makes this very unlikely. Um, the fact is that Jesus is using pretty common language, established metaphors, to refer to the Jewish people as God's children and Gentiles, anyone else, as dogs. At best, an in- inconsequential house pet, but at worst, mangy and unwanted pest. And in fact, it's not just that this woman was a Gentile. She's also Greek, born in Syria, Phoenicia. Matt, Mark uh, adds this detail on purpose. Greeks had historically been oppressors of Israel, hindering free worship while Israel was either exiled or under, under occupation. And the Messianic hope was that Israel would be saved from uh, the oppression of people such as these. We're going to read next week about Esther. That's another example of them being under occupation, uh, under oppression by people like the Greeks, like the Persians as well. And as if that wasn't bad enough, the region of Tyre, at least at Jesus' time, was often prospered at the expense of those in Galilee, being well-stocked with produce from Galilee as those who grew the food silently went hungry. So she is not just a Gentile, but she's a member of a resented class of privileged foes. Josephus later notes, that text is real small here, sorry for you all, This is where I'm pulling it from. But Josephus later notes that the people of Tyre are our bitterest enemies. This is a helpful reframing for us because I have always imagined uh, this prejudice to be a, a looking down upon the other. But that would mistake the actual power dynamics going on here. So if we really want to understand exactly what's happening in this relationship, you have Rome, who are the ones in power. You have both the Greeks and the Asian Greeks as being occupied by Rome, as being dominated, and the Jewish people as being even lower. And so these are two minority classes that are interacting with one another, with existing animosity between them. So what does this change for the dog language here? Well, imagine the difference between calling uh, someone a dog who works for Wall Street versus someone uh, a dog who lives on the street, right? These are two different things. One implies greed and a predatory nature. The other implies a lack of worth or status. All that to say, however we read that, it's very difficult to read Jesus' statement in an endearing way. I don't think that that's the option we should go with. Fourth option, Jesus is a bigot. Now, no commentator or biblical scholar that I have ever come across argue this. I think that it's fair to consider it as an option given the circumstances. Um, maybe just, Jesus just means to be and that Jesus is somehow enculturated with systemic racism. Now, uh, I have heard this argument made from non-Christians before. They would look at this and say, see, Jesus isn't, isn't even perfect. 
he isn't even sinless. He's got the same kind of sin that everyone else does. Now, that's problematic for us because Scripture itself attests to Jesus being sinless, including the Gospel of Mark. So why would he include this story if it said that? But also it's problematic because it would be completely inconsistent and out of character for Jesus. First, Jesus raises the bar when it comes to our speech. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says that we should not only avoid murder, but beware of even harboring anger towards others. That calling someone a fool gets us into dangerous territory. And that doesn't stop Jesus from using harsh language sometimes, particularly towards other religious leaders like the Pharisees, calling them things like whitewashed tombs or blind guides. But these are people that he knows. These are people that uh, he interacts with regularly, and they're his own people as well. Second, even while Jesus spent the majority of his earthly ministry focused on his own people, he had no shortage of interaction with Gentiles. And all of them were marked by this openness and compassion. So it would be incredibly out of character for Jesus to encounter a person in need from any people group and to respond so callously. That should signal to us that there is something going on here in this text. There is something else happening here. And this is where I would uh, suggest my favorite option, option number five. That Jesus is teaching a living parable to this event. I think it's illuminating for us to see what the disciples have to say on this matter. Absolutely nothing at least in Mark's gospel. In Matthew's gospel, in his retelling of this event, they do say something. They say, uh, it says, Matthew 15, 23, Jesus did not answer a word, so his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. Now, it's strange to us that Jesus talks to this woman with such a demeaning uh, way, but it would not have been strange for them. They are fully aware of the tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. And that tension and prejudice would have only been exacerbated by the realities of class conflict, conflict and financial strain that I mentioned earlier. So for the disciples, it is not strange that Jesus would refer to Gentiles as dogs, even to this woman's face. Jesus has merely articulated what they're already thinking, and in a more charitable way. What is strange about this event what is strange about this is that Jesus grants the woman's request. So rather than, and rather than take offense at the statement, the woman accepts what he says at face value, but she persists anyway because of her daughter's need. She humbles herself and asks in faith, knowing that she doesn't, based on the way that this relationship works between them, that she doesn't seem to deserve this favor. And Jesus honors her. And her daughter is healed. That is the strange, subversive part of this event. The part that would leave the disciples scratching their heads, reflecting, later recording this for all of us to ponder. Now, to be fair, I've given the against for all the other ones, so I should note what, what someone might say against this option. For one thing, Mark doesn't mention uh, the disciples in this. He seems to not think that their presence is all that important or their reaction. Um, and also, uh, it's still uncomfortable to think of Jesus using this woman's distress as a teaching moment. But I might respond to that. Mark's literary cues 
throughout the, the rest of this chapter and onward, already are starting to display to us something about the changing relationship or reframing uh, between the Jewish people and Gentiles and how uh, they, they ought to be thinking about how they are included in this good news and this message. And as well, I might note that despite this seeming difficult situation, the woman is unfazed. The woman is unfazed. In this respect, I'd say we can make the argument that Jesus is testing this woman's faith, but not to determine her worth, but that this test is meant to demonstrate her faith to others as an example. In this event, Jesus and the woman are modeling truths for the disciples and for us to learn from. What are these truths? Well, first of all, it teaches us that the kingdom of God is the hope for the entire world, for everyone. Think about it this way. Who else was this woman supposed to go to for healing? Who else would the disciples even have said is the savior of the world that could do something about her uh, situation? He alone is the one. This incident itself is a reminder to the disciples that Israel was always meant to be a sign of hope for the nations, a witness to the goodness of God. And this will only be further cemented as Jesus continues on with them into Gentile territory, healing folks there. He heals a, a blind man and then repeating the miracle of the loaves and fishes in that area. Second, it teaches us that faith is a means, uh, it, it means asking with confidence in who Jesus is not with confidence in our own worth. So Jesus lets this woman be a teacher for the disciples of what real faith looks like. Similar to the parable that we heard earlier about the persistent widow and the unjust judge, this woman is driven by her daughter's need and her trust that Jesus can do something to help. She doesn't argue her worth or priority. She just asks in humility. Faith is not about our worth. It's about who Jesus is is. And finally, it also teaches us this, that being corrected need not lead to, self, to offense or to self-justification. So the woman models this by humbly accepting the role of dog in Jesus' metaphor. But Jesus also models this by accepting her answer. That is significant. Think about it this way. Reflect on this. The God of the universe come as a man in a patriarchal culture, allows himself to be apparently bested by a woman. As a man who is being accepted as the hope of salvation for a particular group, he allows himself to be prevailed upon by a woman of an opposing race and ethnic group. He doesn't balk. He doesn't rage. He doesn't posture or explain. He doesn't even try to save face or make himself look better. He simply honors her. Now, Jesus did have the benefit of knowing how she would respond, that he was intending to teach a lesson here. But even then, he does not go out of his way to make sure that everyone knows he was just trying to make a point. He doesn't do that. That's significant to me because personally, my pride often makes it difficult for me to ever go very long with the possibility that others might think that I did something wrong or that I look bad. I have a very hard time with that. I don't know if I might be unique in that, uh, but it can be difficult. Jesus is not so insecure. Jesus is confident in who he is. Jesus is confident in the truth. 
And this is a really, really profound truth for us as well. Because Jesus saves just as thoroughly as sin destroys. We were talking this morning in our uh, class on atonement that salvation is not limited just to our personal forgiveness and our personal relationship with God, but that salvation rights all of the wrongs. That's what Jesus does. It's about what Jesus has done to remake and recreate the world, that he continues to do that. He saves us from death and sickness and all the effects of sin in the world. He forgives our sin, but he also liberates us from it as well. He saves us from our own self-centeredness and ego. He saves us even from our prejudices and leads us into love. He teaches us to repent. Leave it to Jesus, the one sinless person, to be able to still uncover our own prejudices and model a better way forward. One of my former college professors will often post uh, on Facebook funny or interesting things that his students write in papers uh, or in class. Uh, usually he's poking fun at their bad writing. Uh, I'm really hoping that I never made uh, any of those posts whenever I was one of his students, uh, but they are kind of interesting to, to hear sometimes. Uh, but once he posted a really thought-provoking question from a non-Christian student that was in his religion and civil rights class. They'd been learning about how there were so many churches and white Christians during the time of the civil rights movement that responded with such vicious speech and actions towards people of color. And they seemed to find no conflict between their behavior and their faith in Christ. In fact, some used their faith to bolster their behavior. And so the student asked this, if these Christians are so full of hate and have beaten and murdered people based on the color of their skin and have not confessed to their sins and see no wrongdoing, how are they still, in a biblical sense, forgiven and allowed into heaven just because they said a prayer calling Jesus their Lord and Savior? He says, like, I know Jesus forgives them no matter what, but I don't understand how he can just be like, yeah, you murdered a lot of people and still don't get why it's bad, but you go ahead on into heaven. Doesn't God care about justice? How can God forgive people and call to himself folks who still live unrepentantly with hate and evil in their heart? I love this question because it reminds us of just how important it is for us to deal with our sin. All our sin. That salvation is not just about our forgiveness, but about our transformation. Because salvation isn't just about us. It's about the undoing the effects of sin for the whole world. Now, fortunately for us, God does not withhold grace based on our merit. If that were the case, we'd all fall short of the mark. But also, fortunately for us, Jesus does not allow us to stay in our sin. He challenges us. He convicts us, reveals to us the evil in our hearts and how far we still have to go. He does so without ever leaving our side. Christ exposes our hypocrisy out of love, not contempt, and he shows us a better way. He often does it in very patient ways. You think about all that he had to teach the disciples, all of the ways in which he challenged them, he taught them, he brought them forward both through direct encounters, through living parables, examples of teaching like this, encounters with other people, that he continued to shape and guide them. Jesus doesn't just want a statement of faith. 
He wants a life conformed by relationship to him. Not just for us individually, but for all of us. He wants to bring hope and healing to everyone. To victim and victimizer, to rich and poor, to religious and skeptic. Everyone. So, may we have the faith to point all to Jesus, no matter their background, whether we like them or not. May we have faith like this Syrophoenician woman to ask in our need, not based on whether we think we are worth it or not, but based on who he is. And may we have faith to stand corrected without posturing or justifying, but rejoicing in the truth with the knowledge that we are fully loved. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you have shown us what is good. We thank you, Jesus, for who you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your life that teaches us, that challenges us. That even in events like this that are hard for us to wrap our heads around exactly what you are doing, you still invite us to learn, to grow. We pray, Lord, that we might be transformed in all that we do in relation to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening today to Sermons at Smoky Row Brethren Church. If you enjoyed this message, would you consider leaving a rating or review or share a link to it on your social media page? All of those things can help to spread the reach of this podcast and make this resource accessible to more people for their spiritual growth. Or if you believe in the mission and the work of our congregation and want to support what we're doing, you can give online at smokyrow.org give. Link available in the show notes. All of our ministry work is funded by the generosity of people like you. Until the next time, may the peace of Christ go with you wherever he may lead you. And the peace and the power of his Holy Spirit. See you soon.